God, we love you, and we're so thankful for your word that provides guidance into how we are to live. Lord, I pray that your word uh, would pierce us today. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't stand uh, near your word where there's a, a healthy distance, but Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves underneath it. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and convict us and stir within us. Lord, give us open hearts today as we dive in to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin uh, Daniel chapter 3, just wanted to provide just a quick summary on what we've seen so far in the book of Daniel. We've looked at the first uh, two chapters, and uh, what we have in Daniel chapter 3 uh, is based on uh, what we've seen so far. Daniel and his three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are currently in exile. They are strangers in the land uh, of Babylon under the rule and reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they are a long way from home. They were taken from their homeland, Judah, because Babylon had seized Judah in about 605 uh, B.C., and so King Nebuchadnezzar took uh, the best and the brightest and the youngest from Judah and took them with him to Babylon in order to indoctrinate them into a three-year program. And we learned about that in chapter 1. And, uh, and through God's provision, Daniel and his three friends here now hold significant positions of influence and leadership here in the Babylonian Empire. And through it all, uh, they have refused to compromise refused to compromise on their convictions, on their faith in Yahweh. Even in, in chapter 2, Daniel has to uh, relay the meaning of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which was not favorable uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he did so with courage and boldness and wisdom. Well, now it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's turn in Daniel chapter 3. They will be tested uh, once again here in a more extreme way. So let's dive in here, looking at verse 1. Uh, chapter 3 opens, and we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, made an enormous image of gold. This was about 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. It's a lot of gold. And the scriptures, the passage here doesn't tell us exactly what the statue resembles, but because King Nebuchadnezzar asked everybody to basically bow down and worship this image, we can assume that's either uh, one of the Babylonian gods or it's King Nebuchadnezzar himself. In fact, one commentary explained it this way, that the great golden statue they were asked to worship was not named. It could have been one of Marduk, Bel, Nebo, whatever its name. It represented Babylon and her king. To worship it meant total and absolute commitment to the imperial government and to the system it represented. All right, so this statue is not neutral. This statue represented everything that Yahweh, that God, was against. Now, the, the scriptures tell us here in verse 1 that King Nebuchadnezzar set up this statue specifically in the plain of Dura. This is within the province of Babylon. But this isn't a random geographical fact here. This is really helpful because it, it, it answers two questions. Number one, uh, this helps explain where Daniel is. <laughs> Daniel's not mentioned in chapter 3. And if you remember, at the end of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel got promoted. Uh, Daniel is serving in the royal court. He is back at the headquarters, back at uh, the, the capital of Babylon, which was 16 miles away from Dura here. 
and he is serving presumably uh, really important responsibilities there in the royal court and could not attend this dedication of the statue. But in addition, uh, this little uh, fact about where the statue is built is really important because Dura was also known as Shinar. Now, Shinar was exactly where the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 took place. Now, the, the Tower of Babel, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 11, is the episode where humanity basically teamed up together and they said, you know what, we don't really need God. Like, we're, we're sovereign, we're self-sufficient, we're autonomous, so we're going to build this enormous kind of tower, this enormous structure all the way to the heavens to show how great we are and that we don't need God. Okay, so Dura or Shinar, has become synonymous with evil. This is where King Nebuchadnezzar decides to build the statue. All right, so this is a statement. This is a declaration, a pronouncement that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, am God. Now, this is further reinforced in verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, we notice that he gathers all of the officials of his empire to attend this dedication of this image. And in verses 2 and 3, we notice that seven different classes of officials are named, and they're listed in the order of importance. Now, they're gathered for this ceremony, which is really a worship ceremony, in order to express their allegiance and their loyalty to King Nebuchadnezzar. See, some scholars believe that right before this dedication ceremony took place, there was this large revolt, this large rebellion that took place in Babylon. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is holding this dedication ceremony in order to kind of call these really important people in his empire to display their loyalty to King Nebuchadnezzar. But just imagine this scene for a moment. You have the most important people throughout the empire here at this location at this time. Uh, there, there could be several hundred. Some scholars believe there's over a thousand people here at this dedication ceremony. And you could almost feel the, 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 the tension in the air, right? The, the anticipation is just unnerving as they're standing before this colossal of a statue, 90 feet tall, wondering what will happen next. What will this power-hungry ruler do next? And what happens next is truly unbelievable. In verses 4 through 6, uh, we learn that there's this large band there. It's, it's filled with all kinds of different musical instruments. It's the best musicians in the world. But there's also a herald there who makes a loud pronouncement on behalf of King Nebuchadnezzar, this decree from the king. And the decree went something like this. He tells them, remember, all of these really important people in the empire, that when the music starts to play, you are to bow down and worship this statue. And if you don't, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace and die. Now, that's not much of a choice. That's not much of an ultimatum there. You know, you can almost imagine, you know, some of those government officials kind of maybe whispering to each other like, oh, that's why he brought us out here? Like, we don't really have an option here. We got to fall down on our knees and worship this statue or else we're going to die. And that's exactly what happened. In verse 7, 
When the music started playing, the sea of government officials from every people group, nation, and language, they fall on their face and they worship this golden statue. Now, this is not entirely surprising for us. Like what we know about the Babylonian culture is that they valued religious pluralism. They valued the tolerance of all religions, of all really little gods. And so for them, what's one more image in the smorgasbord of, of different idols to worship? Right? Maybe for some of them, just seeing this magnificent, huge structure was enough for them to say, okay, I'll bow down and worship it. Or maybe it was the sight of just everybody else is doing this. So that must mean that this is right. And that's what led them to bow and to kneel. Or maybe it was the threat of death, right? If we don't, we're going to die. So I'm going to bow down and worship. Whatever the reason, all of them submit and surrender and worship. Well, not all of them. Three refused. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three buddies, refuse to worship this image. Now, next week, we're going to learn more about why they refused and the implications for their refusal. But right now, this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to try to understand the insurmountable pressure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have felt in this moment. It's so easy for us to read scripture and to read it so quickly, and we know the the fiery furnace scene is one of the most popular stories in all the Bible. It's so easy for us just to kind of skim on by and for us not to try to understand what it was like here in this scene here for God's people to actually be faithful. And so what I want us to do is try to feel the pressure here, the, the, the crazy environment that they found themselves in and why their faithfulness to God is so important and so powerful. Because if we miss understanding the insurmountable pressure, we're going to miss the significance of their faithful courage. All right, And even more so, Daniel chapter 3, this passage today is written in order to bring out the pressure that they felt. Daniel 3 is a literary masterpiece. There are intentional literary devices that are used here very precisely for us to feel the weight and the pressure that they must have felt. Let me point out just a couple of these things here. Hopefully you guys can read that font. Um, Let me walk through this here. But verse 1, all right, we're immediately met, met with the impressive size of this golden image. And the implication of that, the pressure that they felt, was that this idol is unavoidable. All right, but in addition, the, the repeated references to the statute was set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. That's used six different times in these first seven verses. King Nebuchadnezzar set this up, set this up, established it. This tells us that the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar is unavoidable. In addition, you have the repetition of the long list of officials that gathered here to worship the statue. Twice it's actually mentioned. This tells us that Shavrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they face the inescapable pressure from the government, from the society, and from their peers. Also, you have the repetition of the international scope of those assembled here, from peoples, nations, and languages to worship the idol two different times. The pressure there is that the universal acceptance 
of idol worship was at play. You also have the repetition of the list of the musical instruments. When the music plays, they're supposed to fall down and worship. This shows us the unmistakable signal to engage in idol worship. You also have the, the repeated threat of punishment being thrown into the furnace, which was actually carried out multiple times here. Reference in chapter 3 shows the pressure of the inescapable death penalty for insubordination. And then, of course, you have the repetition of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These names given to them, named after these pagan gods, shows the intense focus of their conformity, the attempt to conform them to the Babylonian culture. You take a step back and you look at all of these aspects, these literary devices, and you can feel the pressure of, of them just being squeezed into the Babylonian culture to submit and to bow down and worship. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just three individuals in the midst of hundreds, maybe a thousand really important, influential people, how easy it would have been for them to compromise. How easy it would have been for them just to give up a little bit of ground and just to maybe kneel for a moment and then quickly move up, you know, for them to, to say to themselves, look, no one's going to find out about this. We're, we're a long way off from home. Daniel's not even here. You know, for them to think, we have influential positions in the empire. Like, we can use this for good. Let's just kneel for a moment and then quickly move on. And yet, they don't. Like, they don't. In the midst of that kind of pressure, they remain faithful to God. And again, next week, we're going to learn, learn more about why that was the case. But one of the things that we are challenged with, even these first couple chapters, is that for us as the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ today, we need men and women who know how and when to draw lines in the sand. That we need to be people who are steadfast in our convictions, who refuse to compromise in the midst of incredible pressure from the society around us. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are displaying that in a way that should inspire us to consider about the lines in the sand that we need to draw as the people of God, no matter the pressure around us. Right? That's one of the challenges that we're faced here, but that's not the only thing that's going on here in this passage. The other thing that's going on here in these first seven verses, this golden statue is telling us something. That King Nebuchadnezzar builds this enormous structure made out of gold. And it's to remind us of chapter 2 and the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. If you remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this enormous statue. And if you remember, the head was the head of gold. And that represented King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And so you see this connection between chapter 2 and chapter 3 a golden statue, and a golden statue. Now, there's also a disconnect, though, from chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it, it centers on King Nebuchadnezzar's response and posture towards Yahweh. At the end of chapter 2, we find King Nebuchadnezzar in, in verse 47 say this. He says, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal 
this mystery. Now, that is a very different kind of King Nebuchadnezzar than in chapter 3. And the question is, is how does Nebuchadnezzar go from worshiping Yahweh to chapter 3, building this statue, presumably about himself, and calling all of these people to worship him? Now, some scholars believe that he just forgot about Yahweh, that nine years have passed, maybe even more since the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of 3. So the elapse of time, maybe he just forgot about Yahweh's power. Now, that might be an option here, but I think there is something far more destructive at play. What I think is going on here, what King Nebuchadnezzar is demonstrating before us is the elusive danger and power of idolatry. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, besides them, no one thinks twice, really, about bowing down before this image. There's nothing in the text that suggests that anybody else, you know, raises their hand and says, hey, guys, this isn't a good idea. Uh, This is evil. This is sin. We probably shouldn't do this, right? Everybody just kind of falls down, and worships. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though, see the danger of what's going on right here, and they refuse to participate. But everybody else just kind of falls down, and they worship. And the question that's posed for us today is, do you see the danger of idolatry? Do you see what's going on here in this moment? Like, What would you have done if you were placed in that kind of scenario? Would you have refused to bow and risk not only your influential position of leadership, but your own life? See, that question is not so hypothetical. That that question of, do you see the danger of idolatry, is a question that's posed to us every single day. See, what we need to understand about this scene here is that this is not about the 90-foot statue. That this scene here is much bigger than that. In fact, idolatry is always about something much bigger than whatever the object is that's being worshipped. That what's going on here with the statue and with this worship ceremony is what they represent. And for us, this is, I think, a challenge for us. Again, we can quickly move on and we want to get to the fiery furnace, but the challenge here is to understand the challenge that's at play for us today. Like we can see idolatry throughout the scriptures as a dominant theme. And yet for us who live in 2022, we can say, oh yeah, we don't struggle with worshiping a 90-foot statue. We don't struggle with worshiping a golden calf or these large images. And we can kind of quickly move on. And let me be clear, that is one form of idolatry. But the Bible also talks about idolatry in a much more broad way. It warns us against a kind of idolatry that is far more subtle and elusive, and from my perspective, far more dangerous. And it's something that all of us struggle with. See, idolatry is anything 
that we look to for our ultimate sense of meaning and purpose and worth. And it can be anything. In fact, Tim Keller describes it this way, that idolatry is anything that we look at and say in our hearts, I have to have this or else my life doesn't have purpose or meaning or isn't worth living. And things that we idolize, things that the people of God tend to idolize, are not always necessarily evil things. They can be good things, good things that that we want too badly. (laughs) Or to put it a different way, they're good things that we've made into ultimate things. So that if that thing or that person or whatever it is is taken away or we don't have it, we start to feel as if our our lives have lost a little bit of meaning. Like for example, someone may long for a promotion and the additional salary that comes with that. Now, there's nothing wrong to desire either of those things, but the intensity of the desire could be what makes that potentially sinful. Or as John Calvin put it, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. See, I think that's what's going on here in Daniel chapter 3, that for King Nebuchadnezzar, he was given by God, as we saw in chapter 2, a good thing, a position of leadership, a position of influence and power and authority. That's a good thing. What did he do with that? He made it into something that was ultimate for him. And that is the elusive danger of idolatry. That's what's at play here. And so for us this morning, I want us to just explore more of how idolatry might appear in our own lives. Because here's the reality. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar, we can go from worshiping Yahweh in chapter 2 to very quickly chapter 3 in our lives and worship these idols that are at play. We can go from even Sunday morning worshiping God to that very afternoon, that very evening, participate in idol worship that we all have our own golden statues. Now, they may not be 90 feet tall, but they're there. We may not present them to everybody, but they're there. They're tucked away deep within our hearts. We rationalize them. We justify them. Man, we, we pretty them up so that they're culturally acceptable, but they're there. And for us, I want to explore what this passage shows us about idolatry and what the solution actually is. So by way of application this morning, there are five insights concerning idolatry I want us to walk through today as we consider this passage. Here's the first one. What we need to understand about about idolatry and what this passage shows us is that idolatry is really just misplaced worship. See, the question is never, are you worshiping? The question is, what are you worshiping? We're all worshiping something 24-7. And avoid reducing worship to just singing or attending a worship service. The Bible doesn't just reduce worship to something that you do. The Bible describes worship as something that you are. We're all worship. We're made to worship. So worship is what we treasure the most. It's what we desire the most. It's what we delight in the most. And so worship 
is expressing those things, and it can be in the form of singing, it can be in the form of attending a worship service, but it can also be in the way we use our money, the way we use our time, the way we use our influence and our resources and our desires. And we see that clearly here in Daniel 3. This is a a vivid picture of misplaced worship, probably a more vivid picture than in our own lives where we like to hide our idolatry here. There's literally an image, and three times, verses 5, 6, and 7, it says that they worshiped. Misplaced worship. However, it's not as if these government officials weren't worshiping before verse 7, and then all of a sudden start to worship. No, they're always worshiping. We are always worshiping. They just added another image to the long list of what they were worshiping. This is why G.K. Chesterton said that when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. In other words, when we cease worshiping God, it's not that our worship stops, it's that we find a replacement. And we fill that void with something else besides God, and that is idolatry. And so for you, whenever you turn off the switch, when you're not at church, when you're not doing your devotions, when you're not at Bible study, and you have that temptation to turn off the switch and stop worshiping and living for God, it's not as if you're in a neutral place all of a sudden. Something else will fill that void. The throne in your heart is never vacant. There's always something there. And I think that's really important as we talk about idolatry to understand the link between idolatry and worship. Because in a moment, we're going to talk about what frees us from idolatry. And so at the root, I think idolatry is misplaced worship. We, we don't just fall into idolatry. We don't just have a bad moment or a bad day or we didn't just let our guard down. What we have done is we've taken our worship and we've directed it to the wrong object, something that is not God, and our behavior flows from it. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, that I think is really important is that idolatry can be overt or subtle, and it can involve objects that are good or evil. Now, what we have here in chapter 3 is a very obvious form of evil as it relates to idolatry, all right? This is like, yes, don't do this, right? And yes, idolatry can be that. Even in our day and age today, we can take things that are clearly evil, whether it's abusing alcohol or drugs or sexual morality or greed. Like, those are obvious idols for us. But I think what makes idolatry so elusive and powerful is that we can even take these good things and even subtle things, and make them ultimate in our hearts. Tim Keller talks about sin this way, that sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. I think this is what makes it so difficult. 
Like, very few of us, if any of us, say, hey, let's go and commit idolatry. We don't do that. It's much more subtle than that. It's much more sneaky. And no one is immune to the temptation of idolatry. We can take good things like our children, our spouse, a friendship, healthy eating, exercise, some type of good pleasure like sex or food or sports. We can take politics, entertainments, our jobs, some sort of possession, our homes, the weekend, right? Or, hey, when the kids go down to bed, we can finally have our time. You know, we can idolize anything. Like the list goes on and on and on. The challenge is, if you're here this morning and you don't know what your heart is gravitating towards, you're in a far more dangerous place spiritually than you could ever imagine. Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. They're always producing idols. Our hearts can be so wicked and twist even the good things that our generous God has given us. So be aware that idolatry can be overt or subtle, can involve good or evil things. But number three here, idolatry utilizes a mesmerizing rhythm. Let me unpack this for a moment. One of the things that struck me in this scene here is the role of music. Like if you notice here, music is what preceded the idol worship. It's what came before the idol worship. It's what signaled to everybody, come and worship. And I think all idolatry uses a mesmerizing rhythm of sorts. Now, it's not always music, but I think idolatry figures out what tune to play in our hearts and to lure us in with something that makes our hearts sing and dance and desire. Idolatry and the temptation behind that knows exactly what buttons to press, what to place before you. It feels like music. It feels like this offer that the temptation is providing for us is making us sing and dance and submit. Idolatry, I think, lures us in with this promise, this rhythm within our hearts. It makes an offer, makes a, a convincing pitch, if you will. And it says, hey, if you give me your worship, then I can fill that void. I can satisfy that need. I can meet that desire, that aspiration, whatever it is. I can fill that void in your life. And idolatry makes that promise. It says, I will satisfy you. I'll bring you security. I'll bring you comfort. I'll bring you some sort of control or power or whatever it is. And it makes this promise. It figures out the rhythm in our hearts and tempts us away from God. The problem is, though, is that idol idols always lie to us. They always lie to us. They never fully deliver upon whatever it is that they're offering us. And it happened here in Daniel chapter 3. The mesmerizing rhythm from the music cues everyone to engage in idol worship. But what's the promise here? The promise in verse 6 is that you will not die. You will live. But that's a lie. Idol worship always leads to death. It's not physical death always but spiritual death. In this moment, as they engage in idol worship, they spiritually die. So part of 
the path towards freedom from idolatry is recognizing what is the rhythm, what is the promise, what is being lured in my heart away from God and towards this temptation, and to be able to recognize that. Now, fourth, I think another, another important insight here is that idols have roots that produces fruits, has something underneath within our own hearts. See, Martin Luther believed that every violation of the Ten Commandments is actually just a violation of the first commandment. Have no other gods before Yahweh, right? For example, if you lie, it's because in your heart, you've set something above God that's worth lying about. If you steal, it's because there's something else in your heart that you cherish more than God. Or to say it succinctly, underneath every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. Idols have roots that produce various fruits. Now, to illustrate this, I've modified uh, Tim Keller's idolatry chart here. I know this is a lot. You can take a picture and reflect on it in a a moment. But I want you to see this, that um, idolatry is not just what we do. It's not just our behavior. It's not just the sinful activity. Idolatry also involves what's in our hearts, And in fact, Keller argues for four foundational root idols. He talks about this idea of comfort, approval, control, and power. And it's really insightful because when you start to identify what root idol is in our hearts by saying things like, take approval for it, for instance, I am loved and respected by blank. When that takes the throne of your hearts, that is going to generate various kinds of behavior you're going to start to put as your purpose in life, affirmation from whoever else it is. And he talks about how the way this appears, the way that we kind of pretty it up, because we don't want a 90-foot statue in our lives as we're walking around, the way that it, it displays itself is that we're likable, we're friendly, but underneath everything are our various issues in our lives and the way that it, it comes out in the way that we treat other people, the way that we're codependent on others, the way that fear of of being rejected or not having someone's approval can reign true in our heart. And you go through this list and you can identify what's underneath your behavior because the symptoms of our sinful behavior is caused by the root of idolatry. So take, take, for example, lying. Let's say that you're trying to change and repent of lying. Now, it's a good thing to think to yourself, okay, I want to tell the truth more. I want to be honest, all right? That's a good thing. But what's even better is understanding what the root is that's driving your tendency to lie. See, lying is just a fruit. What's the root? Well, it could be any of these four things. Let's say it's approval. Like you lie because you want the approval and affirmation from other people. And so the key to change is not just removing the symptom because that root idol will produce a different kind of symptom. The the, the key to change is actually addressing the root issue, the root idol, taking that and replacing it with gospel truth, right? Because remember, the throne of our hearts, they are never truly vacant. Now, another aspect about uh, kind of the idolatry chart is those four root idols they all have various sources. They all have something that's, that's causing it to exist. And my theory is what I think produces 
those root issues, those root idols, is the kingdom of self. I really believe that underneath those root issues is a worship of the self. It is this idea that I am on the throne of my heart. And that's going to inform the way that we change, the way that we grow, which leads us to the fifth thing here, is that because we worship our way into idolatry, we must worship our way out of idolatry. We most naturally worship idols that exalt our agendas, that advance our goals, that highlight our significance, that deepen our satisfaction, that improve our own image. So at the root, we worship idols that build, advance, and protect the kingdom of self. It's exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He has this kingdom. And what he does is he puts up this idol because getting everybody to worship this idol will advance, protect, and build his own kingdom. So worship of the self is what drives all idolatry. It's what sources all of these root issues. So here's the key to experiencing freedom from idolatry. It's to replace the kingdom of self with someone better. And that someone better is Jesus Christ, right? It's to fight with everything in you to remove from the throne of your heart these other idols, these pseudo-saviors, and to replace all of those things with Jesus Christ because he is more beautiful, he is more powerful, and he is more glorious than any other idol actually is. See, that's the key. And the way that we fight, you're wondering, what does that look like? The way that we fight is through worship. It's through intentional, consistent, intimate worship of Jesus, not just on Sunday mornings, not just in your devotional life, but every single day, moments throughout the day where you are flooding your hearts with the glory and the beauty and the power of Jesus so it's crowding out all of those idols within your own heart. That's the way that we fight idolatry. In fact, Thomas Chalmers describes it this way. He says, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. Look, that's, that's my prayer for you and for me, that we wouldn't just remove idols, we wouldn't just cut them, but that we would replace them with something better. And that something better is Jesus Christ. Look, we all face idols, all of us, are tempted with idolatry, and idolatry does not play fair, which is why I think in part the Bible uses strong language against idolatry. Just listen to the language here. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may, able to, you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10. Jonah 2.8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. 1 John 5.21, dear ch children, keep yourselves from idols. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. You see the language the Bible uses here? The Bible does not suggest to us to flirt around with idolatry or get as close as you can 
to idolatry or just kind of tolerate them because we're all human and we all have a sinful nature. No, the language the Bible uses is put them to death. Flee idolatry. Run away from idolatry. Now, why? Why does the Bible use such strong language? Because the Bible is trying to tell us that we have something better. Do not settle for idolatry. Everything that idols offer to us leads to emptiness and destruction. We have something. We have someone much better, and his name is Jesus. That Jesus provides a deeper satisfaction, a lasting security, an unconditional acceptance. Jesus is what satisfies the deep longings of our hearts. Oh, church, do not settle for idolatry. Do not listen to their lies. Do not allow your heart to be lured away by those temptations. Run to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Soak in his presence. Adore his beauty. Exalt his name. Let him reign supreme in and on the throne of your heart. That's the way that we fight. And that is the way to freedom. Let's pray. God, we give you praise and thank you for this example. Lord, in Daniel chapter 3, where we thank you for the challenge it provides for us, even as your people today, Lord, to have a posture against idolatry that is much more intentional and focused. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see the destructive nature of idolatry. Lord, I pray that you'd help us also to see the beauty and the worth and the satisfaction that Jesus and Jesus alone provides. Lord, he is the treasure that we want. He is what we've been made for. So Lord, help us. Give us a resolve to trust in you as we fight idolatry. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.